you could turn to Acts chapter 28, we are finishing our final descent into the book of Acts. It's a joy to be back in the pulpit. It feels like it's been forever, um, and I'm looking forward to getting back into regular preaching again. We're going to be starting our series on the five solas coming up in a couple of weeks to celebrate the 500th celebration of the Reformation. This is an odd text to jump back into, I'm not going to lie. This text proved to be quite challenging because it's so random. Seemingly random texts used to frustrate me so much when I was early on to preaching. Because when you approach a text with the presupposition that nothing is random and nothing is haphazard in Scripture and that all of it has been beautifully and perfectly orchestrated by an infinitely wise God, then even when it's a tough text, you grab a hold of it like Jacob and you say, I will not let you go until you bless me through this text. And this was one of these passages. The, the last several um, years of experience, I've learned to just trust and wait on the Lord and just trust that random texts often end up being the texts that end up building the greatest bridges to the context within the passage, and this is one of those passages. The last several chapters have been about Paul's quest to get to Rome. He's had his heart set on getting there for several chapters now, and Paul has been wanting to get down there to preach the gospel in the midst of the Roman Empire, and you could tell that Paul in many ways sees this as his final stop and in many ways as the culmination of what God had been doing in his life. And in case you didn't know, the whole book of Acts is about ministry. It's not like Paul is just getting ready to go into ministry in Rome. The book of Acts has been about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's been about the ministry of the Holy Spirit building and working through his church. It's been about the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through his people to build and establish his church. And we're going to see the truth that many of us have learned through frustration. I'd love to do a show of hands, but I'm not trying to embarrass you all. But a lot of us have learned this truth through banging our heads against the wall that often ministry doesn't look the way that we think that it should. And I want to unpack that before we do. I don't want to just assume that we're all on the same page as I use the word ministry. Ministry is in often many ways and in many contexts a polluted word that maybe has a decent amount of baggage or even confusion that's tied to it. For some, it's polluted because you see it as somebody else's job. Therefore, they fail to see the relevance of the topic. It's almost like, hey, you're the pastor. Why are you up there talking to us about ministry? Isn't that what we pay you for? Isn't that what that basket just went around for so that you could be doing the ministry? For others, the term is polluted because they have a distaste or a distrust towards the ministry. Maybe because they've been burned by a ministry or burned, been burned out by the ministry or just confused by what the term means. And some of that confusion should answer itself as we go through our text this morning. But I just want to let you know for the point of our message today... I'm going to be working off of a basic presupposition that is profoundly biblical and cover to cover in the Bible that we are all called to be a part of God's ministry. So we're going to be looking at seven lessons of life and ministry that, from the end of the life of the Apostle 
Paul, and we're going to jump right into the first one as we jump into Acts 28, and that's that ministry is life. Look at verse 1 of chapter 28. It says, after we were brought safely through and then learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. See, for Paul, he was just floating along after the shipwreck that we learned about the last couple of weeks onto this pagan island, and he's literally and metaphorically just floating along to where the Lord leads him. This was not a planned season of ministry, but not all ministry happens in the planned seasons. Ministry's life. Paul might not have planned this, but guess who did? The sovereign God who called him. So whether Paul wanted to be out there or not, and my guess is that he didn't, God didn't really ask for his vote in the matter, did he? He didn't ask Paul to counsel with him and say, how, do you, how would you feel about this direction being of your life? So he had the choice to either seize that opportunity when God brought it into his life or kick against it, but either way, he wasn't going to change the reality because God was sovereign over the reality. For us, ministry being life means that we seize the opportunities that the Lord brings us and gives us when he gives them to us, whether that's sitting around the dinner table with our children and making disciples as we eat and in the rhythms of our life with our kids, or whether that's walking down the hallways of our schools where we have to accept the fact that we are a Christian in an environment where not very many people share or even respect the faith or presuppositions that you hold to, or whether it's the way that you interact with a difficult coworker, or whether it's having to wake up each and every day to go to a job that is not all that glamorous because it supports your family and puts food on the table and to be able to do it with an attitude of worship in your heart. Most ministry does not happen in the times of the spectacular, folks. Most ministry happens in the most mundane times. And if we're in step with the Spirit, we're going to notice that literally all of life is full of opportunity because ministry is life. But also, conversely, the opposite is true. Life is ministry. You're going to see in a moment, as I read on in the text, that Paul is able to just jump right in. I mean, like, he lands on the beach, and he jumps right in and starts serving. Dave just talked about Christian skaters. This was the beginning of Christian surfers. He rides his plank up onto the beach, and he's just like, yo, I'm ready to go serve this pagan island. And even though he didn't have programming set up, even though he didn't have a plan for this encounter, even though this was in no way possible to have been on his radar, he was able to find ways to be a servant right where God had him and put him and called him to be because he saw all of life as ministry. Folks, being a missionary, being a servant, is not what you do. They are a part of who we are when you bear the name Christian. They become part of your very identity, meaning they are woven into the fabric of who you are and who you are becoming. You want to know why? Because they were a part of Christ's identity, whom you called on for your salvation. 
He went around saying things like the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve, to be a servant, and to give his life as a ransom to many. He said things like, so as the Father has sent me, so I sent you, and embraced his sentness as a missionary. And because of that, he was able to embrace all of life as ministry. Because of that, wrap your minds around this. He was able to do the most significant thing ever by even embracing death as ministry. Man, that's who our Savior was. Because it was just woven into the fabric of who our Savior is. So, our life is to be a portal of ministry. If your life is really ministry... Folks, it's going to show up in two words that begin with a P. It's going to show up in your priorities, and it's going to show up in your prayers. You're regularly going to be asking things like when you wake up, Lord, use me today. Does anybody pray that? I mean, before your feet even hit the floor, Lord, use me today. Lord, help me to see sovereign opportunities when you bring them before me. Lord, help me not to see the things that come and get in the way of what I thought I was supposed to be doing as a distraction, but as a sovereign opportunity. And Lord, help me to be faithful when those opportunities should arise. And before I move on, this point does deserve a little bit of clarification because a lot of people get really, really goofy with this point. I've had many a friend where I asked them where they're serving in ministry, and they've used this point both, check this out, how coordinated they are, both to sound hyper-spiritual and shirk responsibility all at the same time by giving you a, my whole life's a ministry, bro. <laughs> Guess what? It's not supposed to be either or. It's supposed to be both. Look at the example of what Paul is doing here right in our text. He had a specific ministry that he was going to serve in, which was to go stand before the courtship of Caesar in Rome. But his whole life was also ministry, which is why he's able to serve equally, whether in the courts of Caesar or on the beach of Malta. And it's amazing how opportunities just pop when you're able to see it through those lenses. Third point about life in the ministry that we see from our text is ministry often doesn't look the way that we think it's supposed to be. And this is really the crux of what it is that we want to share with you. Don't you think it must have been a little, little bit odd that this message about a Jewish Messiah was generally rejected by the Jewish people and that Paul, a Jewish man, was generally rejected by his own people, yet he receives a warm reception amongst this pagan people when he arrives on their island. Again, look at verses 2 to the first part of verse 3. It says, And the native people showed us unusual kindness. That must have felt nice after the previous four chapters, right? I mean, that guy needed some unusual kindness. And here it is, the Lord giving it in an unusual way. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us because it had begun to rain and it was cold. These people cared about those things. And Paul gathered a bunch of sticks and he goes and he puts them on a fire. Look, I'm guessing that Paul did not see ministry coming down the pipe 
in this way. I'm guessing that this isn't the way that Paul thought that it was supposed to all unfold. It would seem that Paul's priorities, if you follow the pattern in the book of Acts, whether he entered a new city, it was to find out whether there was a synagogue there so that he could go and preach about the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people that might be a remnant in that city and then to extend this offer to come and listen about the savior who is the savior to all not just to the jewish people to establish a new church plant in that city and to be able to raise up capable elders to be able to oversee that church and to leave it in the hands of and eventually to make it back to jerusalem and to give it one more try to go to the temple and say get out of the temple Stop worshiping in figures and signs and embrace your Savior who said one day the day's coming where you're not going to worship on this mountain or that mountain, but true worshipers are going to worship me in spirit and in truth. Do it before it's too late. And then eventually prioritized standing before the Roman officials to preach the good news. But look at, as you check out this chapter, This story doesn't look like any of that. He's kind of like stuck in this in-between sort of spot where he's not going one direction or the other. And this is perhaps the greatest theologically trained mind of all time. This guy had been groomed since birth by the greatest theologians of his age. And here he was on, he was supposed to go stand before the most powerful man ever. Nobody has ever demanded authority like the Caesars did. And Paul is on his way to have an open audience before the most powerful man ever to go and preach the gospel. I mean, imagine you had an opportunity to go and preach the gospel to the president, to go see all the goofiness that's going on in Washington, and you know that you have an open door to go and proclaim the gospel, and you get a flat tire on the way there. That's sort of the way that this passage rolls out. That's what this is looking like as it's unfolding. And man, this isn't the way it's supposed to go down. Why would God seemingly be wasting his talents and allowing him to just twist in the wind in this way? And I'm curious if any of you have ever felt that way. Like, God, I just want to serve you. I just want to do big things for you. I know that I'm capable of so much more for you than this. Yet here I am just stuck in the middle of this mundane stuff that I'm doing day after day. But I know my gifts. I know my calling. I know that I'm capable of doing so much more than this. But then life throws you this curveball and it starts to get in the way of what you believe your calling was supposed to be. And you're all like, why, Lord? I was faithful up until this point in the calling that you gave me. I was all set up to be able to do big things for the expansion of your kingdom here on earth. Yet here you are just throwing obstacles in my way. Why? If you would just, if you would just, then I could just. You ever have that argument with the Lord? This isn't supposed to be the way it works out. What if it's exactly the way it's supposed to work out? You ever think about that? What if it's your trajectory that was off and not his? What if this thing that seems like an obstacle is actually God's gracious way of rerouting you to where you were supposed to be to begin with? Even if it doesn't line up with the plan that you had for your life. 
Even if you feel like God and all of his infinite wisdom is not using all of you and your infinite talents. God's the one that gave you the talents to begin with. God's the one that gave you the calling to begin with. God's the one that gave you the ministry to begin with. These aren't your talents. So doesn't he have the right to redirect you if he chooses that he wants to redirect you? Isn't there a slight chance that maybe that it's your perception of your calling that's off and the obstacle is really the opportunity that God was crafting for you all along? And even if the obstacle is painful, did he ever say it wouldn't be? Did he ever tell you that you would go through this life without pain? In fact, he promised the opposite of that. But, but this isn't what it's supposed to look like. I had a plan. And guess what? So did he. And his is better. And he's bigger. And he wins. Which brings me to point four. Sometimes life throws ministry at you in ways that you would have never have anticipated. Or may I even say wanted? Desired? Let's rewind here for a second. Paul's been in prison in Jerusalem the last couple of chapters preaching the good news of Jesus. Paul wants to get to Rome more than anything in the world. He's finally on his way to Rome, albeit not in first-class accommodations. He gets shipwrecked. He's in charge of saving the lives of the people who are in charge of taking his. Sound like anybody, by the way? Whoa, Christology just blows your mind when you see it all over the Bible, doesn't it? Being in charge of saving the lives of the ones who are trying to take up yours. He lands on this pagan island, and then he's trying to make the best of a situation and be just a good, servant-minded Christian, and I'm going to go and build a fire for the people who are in charge of making sure that I get killed on the way to Rome, and in doing so, he gets bit by a poisonous snake. Look at verse 3. It says, When Paul had gathered a bunch, a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. I mean, come on, right? <laughs> you look at this and you're like, really? You ever hear the term snake bitten? You ever wonder where that term comes from? I'm being serious. It came from somewhere. Where do you think the term came from? Any Mets fans out there? <laughs> I mean, Michael, Michael Conforto just went down for two years swinging a bat. So you know what it means to be snake bitten. That's where the phrase came from. This dude is literally snake bit right in the middle of his calling. And even the people on the island realize that something pretty whacked is going on here. Look at verse 4. It says, And when the native people saw this creature hanging from his hands, this thing didn't just bite him. He's like sitting there with a poisonous snake dangling from him. They said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he had just escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They're observing and they're all like, so God saved this man's life only to let him die like a fool right in front of us. This, be, this must be one special kind of wicked dude. A little tangent. We can rail on these guys for being a bunch of superstitious pagans, but don't we do the same thing? Lord, you brought me through this just to allow that to happen? What did I possibly do to deserve this? Brothers and sisters, that doctrine's called karma. 
That's not the Christian gospel, and it has absolutely nothing to do with our Christian faith. There is no calling of reciprocity in the gospel. It's not like you have done this and therefore you deserve this because the only thing in the Bible that's set up as reciprocity is Romans 3.23, that the wages of sin is death. That's the only thing that you deserved is reciprocal for what you have done. The gospel is not what have I done to deserve this. From the minute that we come to know Jesus, it's wow, Lord, how could you have possibly have given me a life that I could have never deserved? And how could you have possibly have taken everything that I did in order to give me that life? That's the good news of Jesus. But you could never, you could understand how people would be looking at this situation and be like, what on earth did this guy do to deserve all of this? I'm guessing this didn't fit into Paul's five-year ministry plan. As in tune as he was in the spirit, I don't think he was like, you know what? I'm really hoping to go get beaten in Rome only to get shipwrecked on the way there and then get bit by a snake. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't planning for this. He didn't go to seminary for this stuff. I mean, I think of, like, daily, I say, they did not train me for this in Bible college. And that's, I'm sure, the way that Paul must be looking at this situation. Like, I'm just building a fire, and I really got to have a snake be hanging from my hand. They didn't train me for this in seminary. But you know what's really cool? I think that God was using every single ounce of it. He's not wasting a thing. Even if he didn't plan for it, this is what God planned for even if he didn't want it, this is what God wanted. Now, I bet if you thought back to the times when God used you most significantly, that those opportunities were born out of things that you could not have anticipated. I remember when I got called into youth ministry. I had been asked to be a youth pastor at my former church, and I said, no way. If there's one thing I will not do. I even remember praying this up on the roof of Moody Bible Institute, saying, God, call me anywhere but youth ministry. And then my wife gets this real neat job for this, to replace this woman that was pregnant. She gets hired as the admissions counselor at a seminary. And they say, as long as you're at this seminary, you can go here tuition-free for the rest of your life. Go ahead and finish your Ph.D., and you guys can have free housing on campus. And I'm like, yes. Well, that's going to be the way that my calling is supposed to go so everybody can hear what a great scholar I am and all of my theological musings about things. But something happened. We got pregnant on our honeymoon. <laughs> it didn't fit into our 10-year plan. I mean, I was set up with this last name like Lawyer, and I just thought, how fly would it be to be Dr. Lawyer? I mean, your name just gets credibility anywhere. You got the Trump card. You're like, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, I'm both. What? But God had a different plan, and he ended up calling me into youth ministry. I didn't plan that. But he used Gracie, who is a gift to redirect that calling. Think about, just look, when I say look around, you guys never look around. That's not rhetorical. Turn your heads for a second, like this way, that way, bing, bing, bing. A year and a half ago, did you have this set up? Right? A year and a half ago sets us around February of a year and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> You weren't like, yo, these two churches are going to be coming together and this place is going to be packed out and there's going to be this youth retreat going on and there's going to be... We didn't see that. It was born out of a bunch of things that we did not anticipate. And guess what? For a lot of you, it was born out of things that probably even hurt 
but God did something beautiful to it. So it brings me to my fifth point, and that's that ministry comes down to a dogged desire for Christ to increase and for us to decrease. Look at the conclusion that these guys reach after he's bitten by this snake. He, however, shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up and fall over dead, but when they had waited a long time, they saw no misfortunes come to him, and they changed their mind, and they saw him as a god. So look at the conclusion that these islanders come to. After Paul doesn't die, they go from seeing him not as a criminal, but instead as a god, and that's pretty hilarious. But ain't that just the truth? I mean, when times are low, people often want to attribute things to you that are not your fault. That's why we have the book of Job in our Bible, folks. What'd you do, Job? Man, you must have really ticked off God big time. How'd you do, what'd you do to deserve this, Job? And then when times are high rolling, people want to attribute things to you that are equally not yours. Wow, what'd you do to deserve God's anointing like this? How can I get a little bit of what he's got? And when we're not in the spirit, guess what? We might be silly enough to even believe our press clippings. When in reality, I know that I'm neither as special as the people who think that I'm awesome, and I'm probably not the Antichrist like the people who think that I'm the Antichrist either. Because you want to hear something cool? They have no power to assign your identity because your identity has been established in the name Christian, and Christ establishes your identity. But don't you ever think that in his flesh it must have felt nice to be going from getting his teeth kicked in on the daily to be like, Wow, these guys think I'm something special. If his heart went there for a second, I would get that. I've never faced anywhere near the scrutiny that this guy has faced, but I've still been times where I've just been weary from nitpicking and constant criticisms, and it could be attractive to bask in the glory of self-exaltation or other people's exaltation. Guess what? Many have fallen prey to it, including almost all of those big-name pastors whose podcasts that we've listened to in the entire last generation. So many a better man than I have fallen in to believing their own press clippings and landing to self-exaltation. But Paul doesn't fall for it because the glory was never supposed to be his to receive. Look, you don't win the battle of discouragement with exaltation. This is one of the areas where our culture sets up our darling little snowflake children the most to fail at a tragic rate. We look at their fragile little self-esteems and we tell them that the way that we're going to make them stronger is we need to inflate their ego to overcompensate for the fact that their ego is being crushed. Self-exaltation has never led anybody to be able to win the battle of a crushed ego because we don't win the battle of discouragement with exaltation. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's partially true. We do win the battle of discouragement with exaltation, but it's exaltation of our Lord, not exaltation of our already overinflated ego. We are most effective in the ministry, not when we're increasing, but when we're committed to decreasing so that Christ might be the one to increase. Those are the words of John the Baptist. He had the biggest ministry going, and he comes up on the scene, and his disciples are like, yo, John, everybody's split, and nobody's following you anymore. And he says, good. My desire is so that I would continue to decrease so that Christ might increase. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's viewed as a God, 
But in two verses, you're going to see him laying hands on a chief with diarrhea. (laughs) I don't know about you and how your views of gods are or kings, but going into a hut and laying hands on a chief with diarrhea ain't my view of royalty. But that's what God had for him. Not exactly the behavior of godlike figure, but it is the behavior of somebody who embraces their servitude. Let me wrap up these last two points quickly. We don't wait for environments to suit us. We serve in the environments that God has called us to. Paul could have easily have looked at this time in Malta as his time out to be put on the shelf. Oh, this is my time of preparation to be able to wait to get over to Rome. After all, he wanted to be in Rome. This was merely a pit stop on the way to getting there. It's really less than a pit stop, really. It's a royal pain on the way to getting there. But Paul didn't look at this as, I'm just going to sit this one out. This dude gets out there and starts serving like a boss. Look at verses 7 through 10. It says, now in the neighborhood of the place where the lands belonged to the chief man of the island, Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him and healing him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people of the island who had also had diseases came and were cured, and they honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put us on board whatever it was that we needed. So you look at these verses and Paul just starts serving, even though he's not in the environment that was suited or tailored to his gifts or his talents. He didn't need the spiritual gift of stick gathering to go and build a campfire for the people that were freezing, folks. He just looks for an opportunity and says, Lord, use me. And eventually he starts using his gifts in this passage but it's certainly not the way that he had envisioned. And I'm wrapping up in a moment, but I could have preached a whole sermon on just this point. Do you know how many Christians I have this conversation with way too often? And I just want to say, wake up and get a biblical worldview. I've talked to way too many people that have been put on the shelf for way too long. Or they just sit around and do nothing because supposedly the environment is not ripe for them to do so. Maybe the environment's perfectly ripe and you're the one that's not ripe. Ever consider that? I mean, I just want to ask, and I'm not presuming, because I'm not a dude to be standing up here and wagging my finger at anybody, but are you actively engaged in regular Christian service? And if not, why not? Are you waiting for the environment to be able to change to meet your sensibilities? Where do you ever see God in the Bible, tailor make an environment to suit your sensibilities. Where do you ever see him change the environment to suit the man? You know what I see cover to cover? He changes the man to suit the environment. You know what? Atheists get this point better than we do. They just call it adaptation or evolution or survival of the fittest. I'm going to be blunt. If you're not serving because you're waiting for the environment to change, if I were you, I would start off by asking God for your heart to change and not for the environment to change. Ask that your heart would change first, which brings us to our final point. Ministry comes down to being found where God is at and joining him in what he is already orchestrating. Stole that from Henry Blackaby. It says in verses 11 through 16, after three months we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island of the ship of Alexandria. 
with the twin gods as figurehead, putting it at Syracuse, and we stayed there for three days, and there was made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprung up, and the second day we came to Ptoli, and then we found brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days, and then we even came to Rome, and the brothers were there, and they heard us, and they came as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. And seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who had guarded him. So look at how all of this unfolds by simply being where God called him to be. This guy who is badly in need of some Christian fellowship ends up landing in this area of Rome where there just happens to be this group of Christians to come and be able to edify his sorely worn down spirit and be able to refill him before he's going to the Appian Way to be able to go stand before Caesar and ultimately be beheaded for his faith. All this comes down to being where God is at and then asking to join him in his work. We don't ask God to come and join us in our work and to be found where we're at or to change the situation so that we might find God. God didn't go anywhere. God's not hidden. How do we keep in step with the Spirit and in doing so, join Him in what He's already doing around us? So a couple of application questions. Who's your life about? Just super simple, right? That's as basic as it could be. Who's your life about? Is it about you or is it about him? Does he get the right to call the shots even if you don't like the shots that he's calling? And even if they lead you in a direction that you don't think that you're supposed to be going? Do your prayers and priorities reflect the way that you would have answered the first two questions? If not, maybe go back and rethink them. Are you prepared for your most significant seasons of ministry? to come out of things that you didn't orchestrate, but he did. Think about that question. Like, really, are you prepared for your most significant times of ministry to come out of things that you didn't orchestrate, but he did, so that you could look at that situation and say, I can literally say I had nothing to do with this. I was in the right place at the right time, and by God's grace, he found me faithful when he called me to it. Do you expect God to change your environment or to change you to be able to see your environment rightly? In what ways are you actively decreasing? Like, think of some. What ways are you actively decreasing so that Christ might increase? And lastly, in what ways are you seeing God at work and actively choosing to join Him and participate in what your Lord is already doing? God, we thank you so much that we get to participate in the work of our Savior or that you have prepared good works beforehand so that we might know the joy of walking in them. In Christ's name we pray, amen. At this time we're going to be